0: You're listening to Bad Bets, a podcast from The Wall Street Journal that unravels big business dramas that have had a major impact on our world. This season, we're looking at the collapse of Enron. I'm John Emschweiler. The 2006 trial of Jeff Skilling and Ken Lay was the climax of the Enron saga. Skilling and Lay, the faces of Enron, were both found guilty. Lay died weeks after the trial of a heart attack. At the end of that year, Skilling began a long prison sentence. To many in the public, it seemed justice had been served. But larger questions loom. Did the scandal and the hearings and prosecutions make the corporate world a better place? Or is the system that allowed the excesses of Enron still ripe for fraud? Stay with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. Washington Wise from Charles Schwab is an original podcast. That unpacks the stories making news there. Listen at schwab.com/slash WashingtonWise.
0: The Lay-Skilling trial, the culmination of a four-year-long investigation into Enron, sent a stark message to corporate America that fraud would be punished severely. But the results of the trial didn't necessarily mean justice had been done. Here's my colleague, Rebecca Smith.
2: A lot of Enron employees lost their life savings. They were never made whole. So I guess in that sense, there wasn't justice because there wasn't really a means of achieving that. Basically, the Enron story is a tragedy and I've never been able to look at it as anything else.
0: It was an outcome I couldn't have imagined when I wrote that early story about CEO Jeff Skilling's surprise resignation in August of 2001 or even as Rebecca and I wrote a slew of deeper articles together in the weeks and months that followed.
2: Over time, the story morphed. It started out as a story about one man's resignation. It became then a story about corporate corruption and ultimately a story about how a company can run off the rails when it is aided and abetted by a host of enablers. As such, it became a story, actually a study, in how American capitalism was working at that point in time, as well as how it wasn't working.
0: About larger systemic problems lurking beneath the surface.
2: Well, it really made me think about the system of checks and balances we have, and how we regulate corporate America, and how these systems can break down. I mean, we think of these as being big, strong institutions— corporate America, government, or whatever. In fact, all of these institutions depend upon the honest conduct of a few people. And if you don't have honest people in those positions, the entire system breaks down.
0: The legacy of Enron is vast. The company was a giant, and its collapse, historic. Its demise disrupted energy markets and pushed other power companies into bankruptcy, prompted hearings by nearly a dozen congressional committees, and inspired major legislation aimed at improving the conduct of corporations and their watchdogs. But 20 years later, you have to wonder, did corporate America really hear that wake-up call? Were those changes and safeguards enough to prevent another Enron, or could it happen again? You're listening to the finale of Season 1 of Bad Bets, the story of Enron's collapse. This is Episode 8, Vigilance and Skepticism. Enron's legacy was not just one of corporate greed or of big ambitions gone bad. As we've said many times, it was also a story about how the system of corporate checks and balances around Enron failed. And so, even before the enablers went on trial, and years before Enron's top executives would find themselves in court, Congress began working on ways to improve that system. In July of 2002, on the heels of extensive hearings, Congress passed the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, often called SOX for short. Named after Democratic Senator Paul Sarbanes of Maryland, and Republican Representative Michael G. Oxley of Ohio Sox was a bipartisan effort championed by both houses of Congress. It passed unanimously in the Senate and was only three votes away from the same in the House. Among the aims of the new law was to create more transparency and auditor independence. Sox was, in some ways, a direct response to various apparent misdeeds at Enron. Remember how former Enron CEO Jeff Skilling passed the buck when asked about CFO Andy Fastow's financial engineering? As I said, Senator, I I am not an accountant. Sox put a greater onus on top executives like Skilling to individually certify the accuracy of financial information to make it harder to just point fingers at the numbers guys. It required companies to provide more information about off-balance sheet transactions, like those Raptors transactions that Enron used to absorb hundreds of millions in losses. But it was also an attempt to codify higher expectations of the watchdogs. It established standards for auditor independence to prevent the kinds of coziness and conflicts of interest that existed between Enron and Arthur Anderson. And it set up a new watchdog for the watchdogs, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, or PCAOB, to keep an eye on corporate auditors. The new law also required auditors to report on the internal controls of the company they were reviewing. Extra checks and balances, to oversimplify. Charles Elson, professor of corporate governance at the University of Delaware, says that last requirement might have done more harm than good.
3: This requirement that these controls be monitored and put in place caused a false sense of assurance.
0: Does that suggest that the reforms that came out of Enron, at least in some cases, look better on paper than in reality?
3: Yeah, I think form over substance. Risk has to be evaluated in a lot of different ways. And a check the box approach to risk may give you comfort, but risk is a lot more than going through a procedure to evaluate risk.
0: But despite its flaws, Elson thinks the law strengthened the guardrails on the system. It gave additional protections to people who came forward, the next Sharon Watkins or Jim Timmons, enabling them to pursue whistleblower claims in court. It also expanded the scope of what constitutes a white collar crime and increased the penalties. But Enron's legacy was more than just policy reforms. Elson says the company's 2001 collapse and other events, like the bankruptcy of telecom giant WorldCom, the very next year led to a dramatic shift in the country's approach to business.
3: Enron was the rock in the water whose waves went far beyond the confines of Houston, Texas. And brought the concept of corporate governance into the spotlight. Seeing the Enron collapse, partially as a result of poor governance, I think convinced Wall Street for the first time, and certainly Congress, obviously, that governance does matter. And If you don't get the governance right, the performance ultimately may be very, very troubling. Nelson's biggest lesson? Board independence is critical. Unless you are financially independent of the CEO, you don't have the proper objectivity to do your job as a monitor in an effective way think of the board as a circuit breaker it's sometimes necessary where management is doing a good job you reward them where management isn't doing a good job you punish them or replace them and for the shareholder having a board that's accountable to them is the key to their investment This has, Elson says, led to some tangible results. You see many more CEO terminations today than you did 20, 30 years ago.
0: Elson says that's because boards today are casting a more critical eye on the performance of top executives to hopefully prevent the kind of things that happened in Houston. These are just some of the reforms that came in the wake of Enron's downfall and are part of his legacy. But were they enough? WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our
2: reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it.
0: Check out the quirkier side of life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. The kind of financial engineering that brought Enron down was brazen. But Lynn Turner, who was chief accountant at the Securities and Exchange Commission from 1998 to 2001, says it was more widespread in corporate America than people thought. At the time Enron was flying high, many other big companies...
1: ...were cooking the books, if you will, using very aggressive accounting practices.
0: In fact, suspect accounting practices, with an Enron Echo, surfaced at one of America's most iconic companies, General Electric. GE was formed in the late 19th century, It has long been one of the pillars of American industry, building everything from home appliances to nuclear reactors to trains. In 2002 and 2003, GE sold over $370 million of locomotives to unnamed financial institutions, according to the SEC. Within a few months, the locomotives were resold to others. These transactions, along with other GE financial actions, caught the eye of the SEC. In response to the SEC's inquiries, GE began an internal investigation into those sales. In a 2007 public financial filing, the company said it determined the locomotive deals didn't qualify as real sales. Though the title had been passed to the financial institutions, the necessary risks and rewards of ownership hadn't. Here's former SEC chief accountant Turner again.
1: The sale of those locomotives clearly didn't occur, and it was just a way of trying to say we had a sale, but it was a contrived sale.
0: Sales that really weren't sales. That might ring a bell from earlier in the series. Enron sold some electricity-producing barges off the coast of Nigeria to Merrill Lynch in 1999. The Justice Department later alleged that was a fake sale that illegally boosted Enron's earnings. And several Merrill and Enron officials went to prison
1: as a result. What both companies were doing was illegal. What both companies were trying to do is paint a very false and misleading picture to their investors. So from that regard, although they're, you know, vastly different transactions, in some respects, they're very much the same.
0: In his 2007 filing, GE blamed, quote, intentional misconduct by several unnamed employees and said it resulted in their separation from the company. The company added that there had also been inadequate accounting oversight of the deal. Still, in 2009, the SEC filed a civil action against GE, charging the company with fraud and other securities law violations. Besides the locomotive deals, the SEC complaints that GE used improper accounting in other areas of its business. In one instance, these actions allegedly allowed GE to meet earnings estimates of Wall Street analysts. No GE employees were named as defendants. GE settled the case paying a $50 million penalty without admitting or denying wrongdoing. In 2020, the SEC filed a new action against GE. The agency claimed that between 2015 and 2017, the company misled investors about how it was generating earnings and cash flow in its power unit, where they make big gas-powered turbines. And that GE also failed to disclose large potential future liabilities in its insurance operation. Here's Lynn Turner again.
1: They never told him that it wasn't the power unit business that was generating profits. It was the accountants in the back room manipulating the estimates. GE
0: settled with the SEC again, without admitting or denying the allegations. This time, it paid a $200 million penalty. Turner says in both SEC
1: cases, GE basically falsified reports and showed a much better picture than what was actually occurring.
0: A GE spokeswoman pointed us to the company's prior public disclosures regarding the SEC's actions. She said GE had no further comment beyond that. In those public disclosures, GE said it made any needed corrections to prior financial statements and had taken steps to improve its disclosure practices and internal controls. While the legacy of Enron did bring some tangible changes to big business and the law, Turner is worried that things are getting more lax again across corporate America.
1: We're seeing financial engineering enter into some of these transactions again. We're seeing a lack of transparency
0: Earlier this year, Turner, along with 34 other individuals, including a number of former members of the SEC and the auditor watchdog PCAOB, wrote an open letter to SEC Chairman Gary Gensler. The letter says that some of the problems that led to the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley are bubbling back up. Those problems include, quote, deeply flawed and outdated accounting standards, weak and ineffective auditor oversight, and auditors who like both independence and professional skepticism, close quote. The open letter also points the finger at the SEC, that it isn't doing its job protecting the public. It claims that officials frequently put the interests of the accounting industry over those of investors, and that the SEC has elements of a revolving door. Officials come from big accounting firms and go back to those same firms when their government service is over. The group urged Gensler to take, quote, bold action and came up with a list of reforms. Turner says these larger institutional failures point to a system
1: that's ripe for fraud. It's starting to feel a lot like what led up to Enron. We could see that we're setting ourselves up for another round of corporate scandals, which, history tells us, does occur every 25 to 30 years.
0: NSEC spokeswoman declined to comment. Corporate America has certainly changed since Enron, but in the end, we're still talking about a business world where everyone is looking for an edge, to produce higher profits and bigger paydays. Financial engineering is still happening all the time. Professor Elson says it's not always easy to know when that's appropriate.
3: When is use of financial tools, engineering, if you will, to accomplish bad results? Or when is it positive for the organization? And that's sometimes a fine line.
0: Turner says that line can be even harder to see in good times.
1: When the economy is doing well, it covers up a tremendous amount of sins.
0: But in a downturn,
1: are we going to find out that companies who look very good today aren't doing as well as what we really thought they would? We won't know the answer until the tide goes out.
0: So if there is another Enron Brewing, while the stock market is at an all-time high, it might be out of our sight. For now.
2: Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot.
0: The Enron story involved a lot of players, from company executives to employees accountants, analysts, investigators, and lawyers. (laughs) So many lawyers. Before we come to the end of this series, I wanted to tell you a little more about where some of the main figures are today. Andy Fastow, as you've heard before, has been on the speaking circuit since he got out of prison in 2011. He says as a reformed corporate criminal, he's in high demand in a way he never
4: was before. When I was CFO of Enron. Enron was the seventh largest company by revenues in America. I was never invited to speak anywhere, not one time. Now I'm invited to speak somewhere around the world every week if I wanted to do it. He's also an investor
0: in a software company called Corp. that uses natural language processing technology to evaluate emails and other internal communications, trying to detect tensions among employees that could be a warning of bigger problems at a corporation. Canaries in the coal mine. Fastow has said in interviews he became interested in the company because, as a test case, they effectively analyzed old communication at Enron. Former CEO Jeff Skilling was released from prison in 2019, eight years after Fastow. He's back in Houston. While Skilling declined to speak with us for this podcast, he did grant me his first extended interview a couple of weeks after his May 2006 conviction. In that interview, Skilling told me his 2004 federal indictment was possibly a life-saving event. He'd been in a deep two-year depression, even contemplating suicide. He said the indictment gave him something to fight, a reason to rise back up. Two people who have spoken with Skilling since he got out of prison say he's focusing on the future. Carol Cole, the former stock analyst, says he's changed, more low-key,
1: I was a little surprised at how humble he looked. He had a beard, which was mainly white.
0: And the first thing he said?
1: Before we start talking about anything, Carol, I just want to tell you that I never lied to you. And I was a little surprised that that was the first thing he wanted to say. I guess it was just something he felt like he had to get off his chest.
0: Do you remember what your response to him was when he said it?
1: I said, I believe you. Do you? I believe that he believes that he didn't lie to me.
0: Enron's former head of PR, Mark Palmer, has also spoken with Skilling a few times since his release.
4: Says his former boss was focused on a new business venture in the energy financing field. The first time I saw him, it was it was an idea in his head. The next time I saw him, he, he actually had office space and had brought a couple of people on. Palmer himself is in Dallas these
0: days, but still in PR. After a rocky start in the job market, he found that companies actually seemed to value his time in the trenches at Enron. Today, he's at a firm
4: whose work includes corporate crisis management. Hey, we want someone that's been in a bar fight and had their nose bloodied and knows the experience and has been on the hot seat. So so from that aspect, it was, thankfully, it was beneficial.
0: Another former exec, Sharon Watkins, has had mixed experiences from her association with Enron.
5: My corporate career is non-existent. (laughs) You know, I did have some consulting firms reach out to me early on in the early 2000s. Nothing would ever come of it. It would get pretty far down the road and then the door would be mysteriously shut.
0: Watkins, if you remember, was one of the employees we heard from earlier in this series. She took her concerns about Enron's finances to Ken Lay in August 2001. The worried memos she'd written to Lay were found by congressional investigators and made public. She was invited to testify before Congress and soon became a national celebrity. Watkins says that she never intended to go public. Still,
5: I really can't complain. I mean, time put us on their cover. I've traveled the globe speaking at leadership and ethics and accounting conferences. I might not make as much money as a corporate career, but it's had different other perks.
0: Watkins is now teaching business ethics classes at UNC Chapel Hill and Texas State University. She thinks the climate is safer for whistleblowers today. How do you feel about that label, being a whistleblower?
5: As I tell audiences, it's a little bit toxic. I do feel like it's synonymous with troublemaker. It is changing. So I think some of the stigma is washing off, and I think that's a good thing.
0: In 2010, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, Congress passed the Dodd-Frank Act, a package of financial reforms. It included an award program for whistleblowers. Since 2012, the SEC has paid out more than $1 billion. Watkins says those reforms are a good start.
5: The fact that the Dodd-Frank Award Program brings attorneys to your side and they have skills, they have talents, you know, all of a sudden the balance of power changes and you aren't so isolated and alone.
0: And then there's Jim Timmons, our whistleblower, the former Enron employee who reached out to Rebecca and me at the beginning of our reporting journey. Unlike Watkins, he remained anonymous for the past
4: two decades. He came forward publicly for the first time in this series. I frankly didn't think of myself as a whistleblower. Since then, I thought, you know, yes, I was. Yes, I was by definition, but I didn't have any second thoughts about it. Timmons still lives in Houston. He works in private equity. Frankly, I thought, When I left Enron, my Enron book had closed. (laughs) And then when the Wall Street Journal and you reached out to me about the 20-year anniversary, as a look back, I thought, well, this might be the last chapter of my Enron story. And now there could be one more chapter where I speak to these business school classes and impart my story about what happened to me. So what will he tell those students? If you have integrity, nothing else matters. And if you don't have integrity, nothing else matters. And I view Enron's demise as a total breakdown of values, integrity, ethics, honesty, total breakdown. And that's another lesson for these young people coming up is... Keep your values, because that will serve you well in business. For Rebecca and me,
0: the Enron story lasted well beyond the company's collapse. We wrote a book about Enron, titled 24 Days, back in 2003. It's one of the many volumes about the scandal. Rebecca is still a staff reporter at the journal, working in the investigative reporting team, I retired in 2017 after 40 plus years of the paper. Revisiting the Enron story today, we came to it with some new perspectives. For her part, Rebecca questions whether corporate America has changed much in the wake of Enron.
2: It's been said that history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. So I don't think there's going to be another case of a collapse that's exactly like Enron. But I do think there will be other cases of companies with executives who cut corners or who do things that are unethical or fraudulent. I don't think there's any stopping that. I mean, in the end, companies are susceptible to the weaknesses and the greed of humans. I think Wall Street has always measured success in terms of quarterly profits. It was true during the Enron era, it was true before it, and it's true today. Enron simply was an extreme example of the lengths to which companies will go to try to satisfy Wall Street or to show steadily rising quarterly earnings, even when those earnings don't reflect reality. In some ways, it may even have gotten worse because executive compensation has continued to go up. So there are lots of heads of companies today that have a lot riding on what happens to the value of their stock.
0: These days, some companies have stock market values north of $2 trillion, more than 10 times what Enron was worth at its peak. Future falls could come from a much higher cliff. Rebecca says, covering Enron showed her that our institutions are actually much more fragile than we think. After all, they ultimately rely on people with all our flaws.
2: I think Enron could have been one of the greatest American corporations, an enduring corporation. I think it could have reshaped markets in really positive ways. But that lack of basic morality just produced this unbelievable destruction.
0: Enron, after all, was done in by a loss of trust. People losing the ability to believe in it, leading to its death spiral.
2: I've been thinking about what it is that institutions have a right to expect from their employees. And I've been thinking about what it says on honorable discharge certificates. I have one from the U.S. Navy. People are thanked for honest and faithful service. That's it. It's brilliant, it's eloquent, and it's what everyone who worked for Enron should have been capable of offering that corporation. It happened for some, but it didn't happen for those at the top. Sometimes these things seem like very simple virtues, but they're really important because they're the things that hold the fiber of society together.
0: As for me, one thing has been pretty clear since I first began reporting on this story 20 years ago. Enron executives did some outrageous things, things no corporate management should ever do. But the story is more complicated and worrying than that. While its executives were smarter, more successful, and more arrogant than most. Enron wasn't some renegade outfit run by outlaws. I'm pretty certain none of the execs I've met over the past two decades joined the company with the intent of committing crimes. They were like most people, just looking to get ahead, maybe even blaze some new trails. They were subject to the same pressures and temptations faced by their counterparts in hundreds of other companies. Enron executives crossed the line, and they, along with many other people, paid the price. Perhaps if there's one takeaway from the Enron saga, it's that vigilance and skepticism by everyone involved are things that should always be in fashion. This season of Bad Bets was hosted by me, John M. Schwaller. My colleague Rebecca Smith and I did the original reporting on which this season is based. We also relied extensively on other reporting by colleagues at The Wall Street Journal. Bad Bets is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This season was produced in collaboration with Neon Hum Media. From The Wall Street Journal, Kateri Yoakam is the editor and executive producer of this podcast. Dan Rosen is the co-executive producer of WSJ Studios. Anthony Galloway is the global head of video and audio at the Wall Street Journal. Special thanks to development producer Amanda Llewellyn for her support with the rollout. From Neon Hum Media, Muna Danish and Haley Fager reported, wrote, and produced this season. Nafala Cato is the associate producer. Additional production support from Liz Sanchez. Story editing by Annie Gilbertson and Vikram Patel. Sammy Allison is the production manager. Sound design and engineering by Scott Somerville. And the executive producers from Neon Hum are Shara Morris and Jonathan Hirsch. This episode was fact-checked by Justin Klosko. The theme song and many of the tracks you hear in this series were composed by Hansdale Sue. The other music in this season of Bad Bets is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John M. Emschweiler. Thanks for listening.